Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ozil. Marca Mesut Ozil. Bellerín, qué golazo. Magnífico. Gol. Qué golazo de Bellerín, gol del Arsenal. Gran gol de Bellerín, 1-0. This is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, I, I think we might as well just sort of get straight into it. None of this, what's going on in your life, what's going on in my life. Nobody cares, let's face it. Let's face it, no one cares at all. No one gives a goddamn shit about us or our problems once they have a podcast. So let's let's just give them what they want. Okay, fine, let's do it. Let's do it. Um... Right. Nil-nil with mm. Liverpool last night. There were times when I would have taken nil-nil. I would have thought, ooh, yes, please, I'll, I'll take a nil-nil now. It's all going a bit wrong. And then second half, it was like, well, no, I'd, I'd actually like a one-nil or two-nil. We could win this. And we didn't. And it was nil-nil. And it was frustrating and weird. And it just kind of feels a bit hmm, at the moment, right? Yeah, I don't know if anyone's ever said this before, but... It almost felt as if it was a game of two halves. So I don't think anyone, I, yeah. That's just something I came up with last you, night. Yeah, I would, I'd write that down. And you know what you do? You post it to yourself. And that way you know that you've got the copyright on it. You put the date on it. You post it to yourself. And then if anyone else says it, you go, Aha! I posted this to myself eons ago. Now you, Now you owe me royalties. Um, yeah, I thought it was a really... Actually, I thought it was quite an exciting game, to be honest. Like, mm-hmm. I thought as a neutral, it probably would have been quite entertaining. As an Arsenal fan, quite frustrating, especially the way we started the game. I know there were mitigating circumstances with the, the loss of the two centre-backs, but we were pretty chaotic at the back, I thought. Yeah, the first couple of minutes, and uh, Coutinho had a, a great chance, obviously, mm-hmm. which he which he smacked off the bar. I don't think Czech was getting anywhere near it. He didn't get anywhere near it. Um, but then, but from that, moment where you thought, ooh, could be a little bit dodgy at the back here. We had this maybe 10 or 15 minute spell where I thought, okay, you know, we we figured out that, okay, we're a little bit dodgy at the back there. So the best way to cope with this is by by keeping the ball up the other end of the pitch. And we did that. Um, uh, Alexis should have scored with a header from Monreal. And Aaron yeah. Ramsey did score, uh, but the goal was given um, offside when clearly it wasn't. Yeah, that was really frustrating because it was a great goal as well. Brilliant mm. pass from Cazorla and, a, and actually a really, really nice finish. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that uh, at nil-nil at half-time, I couldn't believe it, to be honest. I was really relieved to be going in at that scoreline because the chances they'd had, particularly that Benteke one, mm. um, it, was, it was a miracle that, that they went ahead. Um, I mean, do you think the goal had it stood well? I mean, would it have been one of those goals that, well, you know, that would have altered the uh, uh, the shape yeah. of the game? I mean, of course, a goal makes a difference, but would it have uh, affected our defensive performance in a way or would it have just calmed things down perhaps to, to go ahead? I don't know. Well, it suggests to me the fact that we came out after a 15-minute break and looked so much more assured suggests that the problem was primarily a psychological one, that there was a bit of panic there that just needed to be put at ease. And I think a goal could have done that probably as effectively as the manager's team talk. But we were robbed of that mm. by a, a poor decision from the, the linesman. And so, you know, basically we're on the, on the ropes until half-time. But a significant improvement afterwards, and actually the, the kind of double frustration is that at half-time, 
you know, you could have your head in your hand saying, what are we doing at the back? And then at full time, you could be pretty frustrated with some of the attacking play and feel like we should have finished the game off when we, we weren't quite efficient enough. So yeah. plenty to be annoyed about. <laughs> it's uh, five games from our last six at home that we haven't scored a single goal. Not a single yeah. goal. And that is a quite astonishing record. I know it spans over the course of la- the end of last season too, and it's very difficult to to put that together. But, I mean, you would say that, for example, if you won five games at the end of last season and you won three games at the end of this season, people would be saying, well, well, we've won our last eight games in a row, uh, even if it was last season. So, you know, you've got to take these um, these facts into consideration. It's five games without a goal um, from our last six at home. Do you think there's any specific reason for that? Or... Is this just a, sort of a strange run that can happen from time to time, or are there are there deeper issues? I don't know because you know we've scored goals uh, away from home in that time and at neutral venues. You know, think of the FA Cup finals fallen in that period, four mm. nil against Aston Villa. So the only thing you can think is: is it because teams are coming to the Emirates and setting up in a certain way, or you know, that I do think you can get a kind of snowball effect whereby if one team achieves a good result at a ground then others will follow suit and look to emulate that I'm not necessarily sure though that this Liverpool team are playing the same way as some of the others who visited towards the back end of last season you know they had a lot more ambition than some of those sides yeah um even Chelsea say who came at the back end of last campaign so I don't know I mean I don't I don't see any correlation do you I just think it's bad finishing I just think there's a lack of conviction in front of goal. I think that there is perhaps something to be said for the the way the uh, the opposition are setting up, mm. um, in that they are sitting deep defensively. Liverpool not so much in the first half, but certainly in the in the second half. And we don't seem to maybe have the guile or the craft to create clear cut chances. But then I think there were some clear cut chances last night that we just we just didn't take. Um, yeah, you talked about the Alexis header. There was the Alexis uh, chance in the second half that he hit uh, off the outside of the post with his left foot. Giroud yeah. had a good chance. Um, I, I thought perhaps he was fouled in, in the build-up just to taking that shot. But, you know, from there, when you're a main striker at a big club, I think you've got to be scoring uh, the goal. Um, you know, he was six or seven yards out. Uh, Mignolet made a save. But, you know, I think uh, the, the chances were there. Mm. And we didn't take them. And yeah. You know, it's it's it is a, a league of small margins of of a goal here or a goal there can can make all the difference. Um, particularly frustrating when we did, of course, get that goal in in the first half, the, the, the Ramsey one. But uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. It's a bit worrying now at this stage because these things then become part of the psyche, perhaps that they they feel that this is an extra weight to deal with. Uh, in a small way, like a little bit of a, you know, the trophy drought. Um, maybe we're, maybe we've got this um, as some kind of a burden. Maybe, maybe. I mean, that is a concern. I mean, I think generally the start of the season is a, is a concern. I mean, I, you know, no win from our first two home games, just the one point. Uh, one win from our first three Premier League games. I don't think it's necessarily the kind of start we were looking for and the kind of momentum we were hoping to establish. Mm. And it's very, it's worrying how quickly these results, these drop points can add up. I know a draw with Liverpool, not a disastrous result by any means, but in a broader context, you know, it's another two points gone and come the end of the season, you feel like 
every point will count for something, you know? Well, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and this was the the thing that we wanted to avoid was the repeat of last season where drop points, not necessarily even losing games, but drawing games at home mm. um, were, were so costly and that, that made the title challenge pretty much impossible. And you're looking at a Manchester City team that have started the season extremely well. They look very strong. They look very cohesive. They look, they look powerful. They look like they're starting to get going and we're sort of... We're, we're, barely going ourselves and and that's that's the real worry and it's it's how the manager um and how the the, the club gets uh, this team to start functioning because unless we do this is going to be another season where the title challenge is, is out of reach way too early in the season to be in any way acceptable so if it, if it's not clicking at the moment why do you think that is is it a problem a lot of people say with the window a week from closing, it might be a problem of personnel. Do you think it could be a problem of preparation? Are they just not sharp enough yet off the back of pre-season? What's, what's well, I mean, you, you look at Alexis, for example, and mm-hmm. the, the chance that he missed against Palace and the two chances that he missed against uh, against Liverpool last night. And I don't think that he's 100% fit yet. I don't think there's any question that he's he's at the top of his game. He doesn't look quite sharp. The movement, the, the little tricks and flicks that he's trying uh, aren't working because I don't think he's fully fit. Um, I don't know that there's any real excuse. I don't know that you could say an excuse, but the rest of them, having come off a, a good preseason and a, a well-scheduled preseason, should be closer to being 100% fit, but I don't know. It's very difficult to know fine margins and all that, but I, you know, I can't really, I can't really see a huge problem with what we're creating. It's what we're finishing. You know, we're having right. attempts on goal, and maybe it is now a question of personnel. Maybe mm. we do have to look at that because, um, as I said in the blog today, the more you look at Giroud, and I like him, and I've defended him. Again, some of the criticism that he gets, I think it's it's over the top. But the more you look at him in games like last night, the more he strikes me as the perfect guy to be on the bench to come off when somebody else isn't scoring the goals. You think back to that game last season against Everton when he started yeah. on the bench and when we needed goals, he came on, he made a difference. I think Ramsey scored the first one, he scored the equaliser with a, with a great header to give mm-hmm. you that something different. Last night, we're looking at, well, how do you how do you get a goal from this game? How do, how do you do it? Put Theo Walcott on? And with no disrespect to Theo Walcott, when he's playing against a packed defence that sits deep, it robs him of the, the best qualities that he has. He made one pass when he came on. He's not a guy who gets involved in the build-up of, of what we do. And Oxlade-Chamberlain was the only other attacking substitute. And then you look at the rest of the bench and think, well, what's on there to change the game? I know mm-hmm. we're without Welbeck. I know we're without Wilshire. But really, it's hard not to look at the squad and think that it, it can't be improved in some way. Yeah, and I think generally you want your your subs bench to have an attacking tilt. You know, you want a couple of versatile defensive players, and then a you know a number of players who can who can change things, who can win you a game if required. Uh, and at the moment, it feels like we don't have that breadth of options. And I, you know, Arsenal will talk about Welbeck coming back, but I'm not necessarily sure that he sees Welbeck as that viable an option as a centre forward. I think he's more likely to play on the flanks anyway uh, and probably not be a regular starter. So I'm not sure how much that changes things. Mm. 
um, obviously in, in terms of bringing someone in I think time's running out I mean it was sort of intriguing that yesterday the, the day where we struggled to finish off a number of chances against Liverpool Karen Benzema came out and, and killed any chance of that that move really with his public statement now yeah. I don't necessarily think that was ever it seemed for a while like that wasn't on the cards but it does sort of really underline the degree to which kind of back to the drawing board in that respect. Yes, but do, 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 does a manager then look at a team that hasn't scored in five of six home games and is struggling to to put away the chances that it's making? Because I thought it was quite telling that Petr Cech said after the game, we have to be more clinical and more efficient with the chances that we're making. Mm-hmm. So is can he look at that and think, okay, well, look, eventually the guys that I've got are going to find their range. One goal will go in, it'll open the floodgates, et cetera, et cetera. Or does he have to worry and say, well, maybe I have to find another solution, a different solution? Well, I know which of those feels more like an Arsene Wenger approach. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I think to a point, to an extent, he's got a point. Arsenal are a sort of very finely tuned engine, you know, and they, there are things that when they aren't quite right, little understandings between the players or or confidence in the final third, they don't click and they don't produce goals, but then suddenly they can find that form and be irresistible. And I think he'll know that after the run we had at the back end of last season, that we've got the players there to, to produce and to score goals. Mm. I think he'll, he'll want to keep faith with that as far as possible. Um, and, uh, and I say that because I think if there was an attacker out there who he felt he could get, I think he would have done it by now. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure that there is an obvious target that he feels is within reach because, you know, it seems nothing is imminent. It doesn't feel like mm. there's anything necessarily going on behind the scenes. So I think he's quite committed to what he's got and mm. I I still expect him to stick with it, to be honest with you. Some some whispers about Cavani. Would you put any stock in those? Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, look, I think Cavani is someone who had a, a brilliant time at Napoli and hasn't necessarily followed that up at PSG but I think he remains a quality player but you know you'd be talking about a £50 million outlay I imagine I, it, I'd i be intrigued to see it but I, I don't know it feels like the Benzema rumour a little bit pie in the sky what, mm. what do you think? I don't know Just, I mean I think if uh, if PSG are letting Zlatan go aren't they? This is what the, the rumours are then the rumor. I can't see them letting Cavani go as well so, I don't know. Maybe we'll get Zlatan. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be intriguing <laughs> at long last. Um, some positives from last night. I thought Francis Cochrane was very good and needed mm-hmm. to be very good, particularly in that first half when our passing uh, was all over the place. The the few misplaced passes uh, from Callum Chambers, who had a, a difficult time, seemed to uh, trickle out. Uh, ripple out throughout the team and and the way that we were careless on the ball, particularly in the final third, uh, put ourselves under some some big pressure. But Coquelin was there uh, with real determination, some good physicality, power, strength, uh, and an awareness really, really switched on when he had to be to, to get back and make some important tackles. Yeah, I thought he was excellent. You know, I think without him, we would have been in big, big trouble. Mm. Um because you know there was that, that sort of real uncertainty in the back two, and he he did exactly what he needed to do, which was he provided a screen. There were some sliding tackles that, at first glance, I was like, "How's he got away with that?" But they were perfectly timed, and hugely committed as ever. I thought he had a really really good game, um, even if I thought this was a game where, in some respects, we were crying out for somebody like Mikel Arteta because 
without Per Mertzacker there, not only did we not have someone to instigate moves from a creative point of view from the back of the defence and start the passing moves going, but we also really lacked a, a calm, experienced head. That's not to take anything away from Cochrane. Who, who I did think was probably our best outfield player, certainly in that first half. Yeah, the importance of the mertesacker kasialny axis was really evident, wasn't it? That calm and yeah. assurance that they give. And I don't think that any central defensive partnership is perfect by any means, but the the just the familiarity that they have playing together and what that then brings to the team, this knowledge that they have, this platform, these two guys who 99% of the time are going to be spot on and reliable, both in terms of their defending and also the way that they use the ball. I think particularly Mertesacker, the way that he uses the ball from the back is important to the way we play. Yeah, and I think that's often overlooked, I think, because he's not regarded as a, a technical player per se. I do think people fail to notice how how important he is in terms of our distribution. Um, and we miss that. You know, obviously, we, losing one of those would be bad enough. Losing both wholesale uh, was a bit of a problem. But Coquelin, you know, he did what he can to keep it at nil-nil. And I suppose the other major positive would have been the goalkeeper. Yes, yes. Uh, two absolutely brilliant saves. Mm. Brilliant saves. Uh, and that's why you buy him, I guess. Yeah, um, but reassuring after a slightly shaky start. I yeah, guess. and I thought what what I liked as well was that he 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 brought some calm to the to the back four, particularly Chambers. Uh, I, I think you know he he was able probably to to talk to him throughout that second period. I think there was one moment where perhaps he he put Chambers into under a little bit of pressure. Uh, with a pass in the area that Chambers then gave away on the edge of the box, it was it was poor from him. But I think after that he sort of he settled down. I think he helped Chambers settle into a, a second half. Uh, we'll come back to check. But what did you think of the manager's decision to to leave Chambers on? It could have been uh, it could have been costly had he repeated that performance in the second half. But that that little bit of a showing in the second period where he was better the team was obviously better defensively will probably have have helped his confidence yeah certainly I mean he's 20 years of age you know we have to accept that from time to time young guys when they're coming in and haven't played I think it was his first start since March Mm. Um, I'm not saying that that's an excuse for him to give the ball away when he clearly shouldn't be doing that but I think we have to look at young players and, and take their performances in a bit of context I think so and I also think it's a position that he's still learning. You know, I think it's something that is still relatively new to him. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you talk about the decision to leave him at half time. It's a bit like the question about transfers. I think we know Arsene Wenger after two decades with him at the helm. I don't think any of us necessarily expected him to withdraw Chambers. It's not really his style. I think he likes to show faith in players where he can. And that faith was rewarded to an extent. You know, Chambers got away with it in the first half, but he looked much more assured in the second. And I think that's really important to his confidence because, you know, we've seen uh, in the in the past players, I think it was at United last season, McNair was withdrawn at half-time uh, in one game. And his form never really recovered from that. Uh, and I think you, you've got to be careful. You've got to protect players. You've got to protect their confidence. And I think Arsene did that intelligently. I'm sure he had a word with him at half-time. I'm sure Steve Bold was in his ear. And I think having someone like Czech behind him 
probably would have helped him get through that second half. Yeah, for sure. But uh, let's come back to check then. First save, uh, was the first one from Coutinho? Was that the best one? Or uh, I think it was, wasn't it? I can't um, remember which came first, whether it was Coutinho or, or, or Benteke. It was Benteke first. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, that was a brilliant save, particularly because he was unsighted for a, a long time as the ball came across. He said himself he had to wait and see if Gabriel got there. Um, but But when he didn't, uh, the ability to get down as quickly as he did and push the ball around the, the post was was fantastic. Yeah, it's one of those where the striker is probably guilty of thinking all he needs to do is make contact here, you know, that the ball will be beyond the goalkeeper before he can think, but a really superb block um, and, and one that I just couldn't really believe, to be honest. I mean, it's one of those that just looked like a goal waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the second one I thought slightly different, you know, is more... Uh, reactive, more instantaneous, showed his reflexes, showed his reach to, to palm Coutinho's shot onto the post. The reach um, there, that's a really good point, isn't it? When you've got a goalkeeper yeah. that's six foot five. Yeah, that's you it. Know, and, and when you see just how little he touched that with his fingertips, it was enough to push it onto the post, but it was pretty much all of his reach to get there. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's the finest of margins, but... You know that's where it, it all it all counts with a goalkeeper, mm. and those were those were brilliant saves. And I thought more than that, he looked uh, if if a little frustrated at what might have been unfolding in front of him. He looked confident and he looked composed and he looked comfortable. You know, as Arsenal's number one, as Arsenal's goalkeeper, and I think it has been a little bit of a rocky start. But I think we saw the player last night that we thought we were getting. Yeah, uh, and you know he saved us. A point, certainly. Mm. There's no doubt in my mind. So would I be right in, in saying that the defensive side of things was scary, but the offensive side of things and the inability to get the goal is what, what's causing the most concern and frustration? I think so, because I think the defensive side of things is more easily explained. I think you drop Mertesacker and Koscielny in there, suddenly it's a very different beast. Um, the attacking thing, you know, there's not necessarily personnel who who are coming in who you think are going to make a dramatic difference on that front so I think that's where yeah the the more long-term concerns lie mm. a lot of talk about Aaron Ramsey on the right hand side and while mm. I understand people being uh, cautious or unhappy perhaps with with Ramsey playing from the right we know that he's given more license and more freedom to to play I thought he was one of our better players last night. I thought he was really hardworking, really determined, should have had a goal to his name, mm-hmm. tried to make things happen, was switched on defensively down that right-hand side. And I know people talked about Oxlade-Chamberlain having a go uh, at the fullback, but I think they uh, overlooked the fact the fullback got a booking in about the 80th minute just after, uh, just after or just before Oxlade-Chamberlain came on. So he couldn't make another tackle, really, at that point. Um, how do you view this this midfield um what about the idea of not playing Giroud playing Alexis as a striker and thus making room for for Oxlade Chamberlain that's an interesting idea um well I mean in the in the absence of anyone else yeah I mean has Alexis as a central striker ever really worked on the couple of occasions we've tried it though that would be my my only concern I guess we won against uh Sunderland was it yeah possibly yeah um I think he played there in the Champions League qualifier as well. Yeah. Um, I I have to say, I don't have a massive problem with Ramsey on the right. I thought he played very well. I thought he was very busy. I thought he was involved off the touchline as well as on it. Uh, He got into goal scoring 
you know, situations. He protected his fullback. I don't, I don't necessarily see that as a huge problem. I think it's a little bit simplistic to go. Well, the midfield didn't function because Aaron Ramsey's out of position. I sure, think. but the, I think what what people are looking at is what Oxley Chamberlain can provide in terms of pace and power and, and trickery creativity, shooting from distance, getting into good areas. There was that fantastic ball that he fizzed across at Skirtle, nearly scored an own goal from. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea that we need a bit more pace down the down the right hand side. I mean, I'm not wrong, am I I'm sure there are stats or heat maps or anything like that, but we felt very lopsided last night as a team that everything Everything went down the left. And I know we've got this uh, predilection for being down that side of the pitch more often than the other side, but it felt really, really lopsided to me last night. Yeah, it was pronounced. And funnily enough, even Aaron Ramsey's goal actually came from a run inside from the left. Um, So even he was spending some time out there. I I see that and I see that... I feel like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain is really unlucky to not be in the starting eleven at present. I'm really surprised as well. Do you think there's an extent to which he's being punished for what happened against West Ham, where he conceded possession so deep in his own half? No, I don't think so. I think it's more to do with the the Coquelin, Cazorla, Fulcrum, if you like, right. in in the centre of midfield. Um, and I I love Santi Cazorla, but I'm not sure it was quite his best night last night. But you know, I I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he wants Ramsey in the team because he makes things happen and he's got this energy and he's got this ability to get you goals from, from midfield because Orla can keep things ticking. But let's face it, he's after his first season, I don't know, for, for such a brilliant technical player, why can't he shoot anymore? That is bizarre. That is really bizarre. Like, I, I, how many goals did he get last season? Six or seven, but there were six or seven penalties. Predominantly penalties, yeah. You know, so I mean, at some point you have to wonder about that balance too, and maybe you get your creativity from from somewhere else. I mean, I can see all the reasons why you would have Cazorla in your team, mm-hmm. but maybe I don't know. Maybe the balance could be found in a, in a different way. I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 a really weird one, the shooting thing. But I I do think that the Cazorla Coquelin axis is important. I think that that's probably right that that's in there. And then I think, you know, you're fitting, to an extent you're fitting square pegs into round holes with sort of shoving Aaron Ramsey right wide. Um, but I th- did think that Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain had a superb impact when he came on. And that's all he can keep doing at the moment is keep, you know, demonstrating mm. what he's got and what to offer the manager. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps there will be a change in the coming weeks because we did lack width. Yeah. on that side of the pitch alright well um, what we're going to do now is uh, take a short break uh, we'll come back with uh, some of your questions and everything else in part two All right, welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions sent to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at ArsBlog and this week I'm going to go first Okay. Right. And this one, it comes from Jordan Freemer, Freemier, I think. And he's mm. at J Freemier or Freemeyer. Yeah, sorry. That's probably right. Freemeyer. Anyway, sorry, Jordan. I like Freemier because it sounds like Dreamier. Yeah, Freemier. It sounds like some kind of milky drink, doesn't it? Mm. Mm, Got to get me some strawberry flavored Freemier. Mm. Anyway, he wants to know while we've finished taking the mickey out of his name he wants to know is it time for the premier league to institute instant replay at least for offside goals 
obviously in the wake of Aaron Ramsey's uh, disallowed strike last night. Probably, yeah. I mean, I think after goal line technology, I think it's probably the next step. Um, I, I do think that when you have the technology to see something like that and it's so clear and so easily sorted out, it does seem somewhat absurd. I know there's probably a concern it will make the assistant referees obsolete, but... Uh, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. And also, I think, I don't know, you could introduce some sort of appeal system whereby managers get the chance to appeal, I don't know, two offside calls per game or something like that. It just does seem slightly infuriating that something as clear-cut as that, which can be solved so simply, is not. And I think now we have the goal line technology, it feels obvious and natural, and I kind of feel like the same might occur with with the offsides. What, What do you think? Well, look, within 10 seconds of the goal being disallowed, we had replay showing that he was onside. Mm. So I don't, I don't believe it would be impossible to put in place a process whereby in a situation like that, as you say, perhaps a manager could appeal because Arsene Wenger said from the bench, I could see that he wasn't onside, where the manager is allowed to question the decision. And you have, like in rugby, you've got a a video official, you've got somebody sitting up there who can look at the replays and come back with a decision within 30 seconds. I mean, given how long Mignolet took to take goal kicks and free kicks last night, it was, you know, 30 to 60 seconds, you couldn't make any argument to say that it would be slowing the game down when Mignolet was doing just that exa- uh, the, the same thing. So the ball's in the back of the net. We think it's a goal. Uh, the linesman has got his flag up. Arsene Wenger says, I think he was onside. Let's have a look at the video. Literally within 30 seconds, you know whether it's a goal or not. And I, you know, I, I really think that that's something that the Premier League and football in general should be looking to use. Top-level football. I suppose the worry might be that if you have this in football uh, throughout, you know, the, the, the top leagues and what have you, that then it, it becomes something that's impossible to uh, to implement lower down. Uh, and it might set it apart from, from other standards of the game, if that makes sense. But really, you know, the argument usually against using video evidence is that, well, it would just slow the game down. It would be like American football. Uh, you know, we'd be sitting waiting, etc. That's not the case. Clearly not the case. Um, and uh, as somebody who feels particularly vexed about not scoring that goal last night, I say bring it in at once, or heads should roll. Heads should roll. No, I think you're right about the slowing the game down thing. You know, if you've seen a replay of something on television, that's inevitably because there's nothing happening on the pitch. They don't really tend to show you replays when you're missing action. Mm. So, And thus, the fact that you can do that, and the fact that a broadcaster can show a replay in that time, suggests that somebody else could have a look at it before the ball's even back in play. Yeah. Um, and it could be even quicker. So it does seem absurd. I do think the point about, you know, the, the game different being different from a grassroots level, the game's already very different from a grassroots level for a multitude of reasons. Mm. And I think that when the stakes are that much higher, it's more important that decisions are correct. So, yeah, yeah I mean, to me, it seems like a, a no-brainer, but that, that probably means it won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's have one. Okay, this is from Jane Cavendish, JCav90, and she asks, where has Giroud's movement gone? Why has he started to mark the centre-backs? Maybe he's under instruction to do that. Maybe. 
I mean, I can't. What 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 frustrates me about Giroud and has done uh, as much as I like him, and I'll go back to saying that I've been uh, a supporter of his, and I think he's a better player than than he's given credit for. But he is what is he six foot three or six foot four? Mm-hmm. He's extremely well built. A very keen physical specimen, you would say. Very handsome, very handsome. Even leaving aside his his handsomeness, as as a as a central defender, a guy that size and of that strength should be an absolute nightmare to play against, because yeah. he can use his body uh, and use his strength to hold you off. He doesn't have to be the quickest, you know. He could be. I, I'm not necessarily saying he should be a battering ram. Because that just it just sounds a little bit industrial, but it's always felt to me as if Giroud has been far too willing to be kicked and pushed around and to actually do the pushing around. And I know that you're 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 competing against uh, central defenders who are big and strong as well. But come on, you know, man up is not the right term. Absolutely. But you know what I mean? You just get the sense that he doesn't quite fancy the physical element of the game and that if he did, if he could be a bit more physical, if he could make life a bit more difficult for those central defenders, it might create more chances for him. It might create more chances for the team. And it just might uh, improve uh, people's perception of him as a player. To me, he feels like a bit of a soft touch at times. Mm. And I was that, about to say, yeah. Do you think he's yeah. a bit soft? Basically? I think he can be a bit soft at times. For a guy, like if he's six foot or less, you know, then fine. I can understand how you get pushed around. If you're a skinny guy and you're playing against, you know, big beastie center halves, yeah, I can understand it. But he's got the physique. He's got the strength. He's got the physicality. He doesn't use it. Uh, as for the question about why he... Uh, why he stopped moving, I don't know. Maybe because he's being instructed to to perform as um, this kind of uh, this. What's the word a I'm fulcrum, looking for? A fulcrum. A fulcrum. That was the word. But yeah, the, the the focal point of the attack, and maybe the manager wants people moving off him. And he did create a fantastic chance for Alexis last night, where he did actually show some strength, and he he hooked the ball out from kind of uh, behind him and and played it perfectly into the path of uh, Alexis and it was a great piece of uh, a great piece of center forward play but you know i i don't i don't quite know why he doesn't put himself about a bit more just be a mm. bit more aggressive because if he did i think he'd be i think he'd be a better player it is interesting isn't it when you think about you know other Premier League centre forwards in the past who've had that kind of physical stature, the way in which they've been able to, it's not a nice word, but but kind of bully a centre-half, mm. um, or at least strike fear into them, you know, somebody like a Drogba or a Shearer or someone of that ilk. And Giroud doesn't have, for, for all his physical qualities, he doesn't yet have that kind of uh, menacing presence. You know, mm. there's a, I think there is a sense, I think if I was a centre-half playing against him, I think I'd fancy my chances of upsetting him early yeah, on. Yeah, you know? exactly. Stand on his toe and watch him yeah, do yeah. the finger waggle and stick a knee in his back. And look, that's the way the game is. You have to cope with that. Mm. So I, yeah. don't, I don't know. I so don't I, know. That, I mean, that's a, a psychological thing. Rather than, I mean, it's, you know, we dismissed Roy Keane's six-pack and selfies. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
little monologue. But one wonders if if that was to apply to any Arsenal player, you know, it, it might be that one. And I, and I do think that, yeah, that doesn't help his case. You know, I think people often pick up on the technical deficiencies in his game or his lack of pace. But actually, if he made the most of the attributes he has got by putting himself about a bit more and making himself more of a mm. more of a physical presence, then I actually think he'd be in a, a stronger position. Um, yeah, as for the movement thing, not really sure. I mean, I think a logical explanation is the one you've offered. Maybe he's been asked to, to play a certain role so that the likes of Ramsey and Alexis can feed off him more as a kind of central pivot. Um, but I don't know. Mm. I don't know. All right, here's one. Uh, we're sort of uh, we're in the same ballpark here. It's uh, two okay. questions, actually. So first one comes from Akib, uh, at Akib underscore Alias. And he wants to know very simply, do we need a striker? <laughs> All right. Uh, so I have that one. And then Petit's ponytail. He would like to know, would you take Charlie Austin? <laughs> uh, sorry, I just coughed up a little bit there. I, <laughs> I do think that we probably do need yeah we probably do need a striker if we're, if we're very very serious about winning the Premier League or the Champions League those two really major competitions I probably I think we probably do need an upgrade on what we've got whether or not it's easy enough to go and get one of those is a different matter you know it's certainly something that's easier said than done Charlie Austin is not in that bracket Charlie Austin is not better than any of the current attacking options we have in my opinion uh, he might have more of a natural goal-scoring instinct, but I don't think he necessarily would fit into our style of play, uh, the kind of interplay that's required. I think it would be a massive step up for him to suddenly go and start playing in the Champions League, and I, I don't really see that as a realistic option. But if there is somebody out there who's better than Giroud, better than Walcott, better than Welbeck, I think that that would be fantastic. And you know, just as you would look to upgrade in any position, if there's room to do it centre-forward... We should be doing it. We should mm. definitely be doing it. What's mm. your take? I think we could use a striker, yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, it comes down to finding the one that's better. Charlie Austin certainly isn't it. I think if you buy players of that level, they might have an impact in some games. But I think over the course of a season, you're not improving. What you're doing mm. is just furthering the problems that you already have. In the biggest games, you're probably not going to have a player who can who can get you the goal that you need. Um, the question, of course, is who, who is the striker out there that we can get? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I really believe we should be doing as much as possible to find somebody between now and the close of the transfer window because um, goal scoring, uh, it's, it's becoming an issue. I, you know, we want the team to improve. You can't improve the team by buying players of the same level that you already have. And that's where it becomes uh, a challenge. But, you know, come on, we've got the money, we've got the scouting, we've got the manager, we've got the the resources where we're a nice club to, to come and join. I, I mean, I don't think realistically you can get Benzema to swap Real Madrid for Arsenal. I just don't think you can, unless they specifically want to get rid of you I don't think you're going to lure a player like that from one of the biggest clubs in the world. So maybe there's a maybe there's a a a more imaginative solution to the problem. Maybe you've got to go and get somebody who you think could be the next big striker or or has the potential to be that big striker and that in itself becomes a gamble, but 
maybe that's the, the, the level of the market that we're operating in. The idea that we're going to go out and buy one of the top strikers in the world for 70, 80, 90 million pounds, it's just not realistic. So we have to find a different way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, one wonders almost if we're sort of backed into a corner in terms of these uh, world-class marquee additions. You know, we, we, we signed Ozil and we signed Alexis, and I think it feels like if we're going to add a centre-forward, it has to be from that bracket. But actually, if you look at Arsene Wenger's track record, his one of his real skills is identifying strikers before they hit that level. Um, and I think that's what he'd probably have to do, because I don't think... I don't think there's an obvious signing out there. I don't think there's an obvious guy to come in. I think he'd have to, you know, produce something out of left field slightly. But mm. he has got the potential to do that. And I don't think he should feel that just because we've got an awful lot of money now that we have to spend £60 million to to get someone who improves us from an attacking point of view. I think they've got to be players out there who can do that, you know, before they reach that level. Sure, sure. Okay. I don't know who they are. No, me neither. But then I'm not paid lots of money to figure that out. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. Um, let's have this question. This is from Davo DC at DC Davo. And he says, Callum Chambers, not ready for the Premier League yet or just a bad game? I think probably just a bad game. He's, he's very inexperienced at centre half. Mm-hmm. He's playing alongside a guy who doesn't really speak the language too well yet. So there might've been some communication issues there between him and Gabriel. I should point out, I thought Gabriel was really good. Started a bit dodgily, but really grew into the game. Uh, and I really enjoyed that moment where the ball came in from, from the Liverpool left-hand side. And Benteke was trying to grab Gabriel and Gabriel just held on to him as well. Benteke went to his knees looking for some kind of a penalty. And that's the kind of strong... Uh, central defensive play uh, that that we're looking for. Uh, that kind of strength, perhaps, when we talk about Giroud, for example. You know, mm-hmm. just be strong. But I think Chambers, when you misplace a couple of passes early on and then you can hear the crowd, I mean, even the way he was kicking the ball at times, it felt very, it felt timid, like he was intimidated by, by how bad he was playing himself. And that's why, I, you know, the, the, the decision to keep him on was, I would say, a very difficult one for Arsene Wenger. I bet he was considering Monreal or, or Debussy to go in there. But yeah, but it would probably have been a big setback for him to be taken off at halftime because he would have been the guy who was taken off at halftime because of how badly he was playing. And you do have to restore a player's confidence. When he first arrived, he had some fantastic games for us, and I think that's because there was little or no expectation on him. You know, nobody really knew what to expect. He was coming into a new team full of enthusiasm, and he played very well. Uh, some preseason games at centre half, some some games at right back, where I think he showed he's got some some real potential as as a player. But these are these are crucial years, particularly for defenders, because young defenders' mistakes are exposed. Um, it can become very difficult to change change people's perception of you as a, as a player if you make mistakes. But having come through that second half and, and played pretty well, I th- the idea is that he's going to be fourth choice centre half. He's going to play some Capital One Cup games. He's going to play some maybe away games in Europe if we've got through. You know, it's going to be a process of building him up over the course of this season to get used to the position at centre half. We need him 
in the squad to give us that depth. The idea that we should loan him out doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever because, you know, what happens on a night like last night where out of the blue you've got two centre-halves missing? They hadn't missed, a, you know, the two of them hadn't missed a game since 2012. We always had one or the other. But now you're in a situation where you have to play um, two reserve centre-halves. If we send him out on loan to le- to ply his trade or learn his trade at another club, we put ourselves at a disadvantage as well. So I think he's. I think it's got to be a learning curve, and it will be a learning curve, uh, and uh, we'll we'll figure it out over the course of this season. But I'd like to think that he's got he's got what it takes, but just had a bad game, really. I think that's fair, and I think that's excusable as well, having played so little football over the last however long it is, you know, six to eight months or so. Um, I think it was a big. A big call, well, not a big call. Arsenal had no choice, but you know, it was a surprise to see him in the starting eleven, uh, and inevitably, it took him a little time to settle into that. And I think, uh, you know, confidence is probably still an issue for him. He was effectively taken out of the team last winter after a couple of really difficult performances. Mm. That Swansea game sticks in the memory, where he came up against Jefferson Montero and, and really, really struggled. Um, and I think he's probably still trying to regain some of that composure. But I think the fact that he came through last night, kind of went through the fire and came out the other side, will stand him in good stead. And I think, you know, what he needs now probably is a, a couple of easier games. You know, if we get drawn against uh, somebody in the in the League Cup, uh, a little bit more of a, an easier fixture. Something where he can have some time on the ball, you know, really sort of, grow into the role and, and develop from that point of view. I think that'll be mm. probably the most hopeful thing for him. All right. Well, uh, yeah, but, uh, not quite a baptism of fire for uh, for uh, for Callum Chambers, but a difficult, a difficult, a difficult game. Right. One final mm. question. This comes from Manny at Mansurotics. And he wants to know, can the lack of goals at home games be due to the negative atmosphere of the Emirates? <laughs> um, I... I don't think so, if I'm honest. It's always a slightly chicken and egg thing, isn't it, with atmosphere? You know, whose responsibility is it? Is it the teams or the fans? Uh, but I I don't know. It's funny. We talked about how the, the crowd could affect Chambers. You know, when he misplaced a pass, they get on his back. Does that begin to impinge upon you? I don't, I don't even think they were getting on his back. I just think there's, the, the, there's a natural reaction to a misplaced pass. Just a... Yeah. Or, 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 you know... I think that's a natural reaction. It's not necessarily getting on a player's back individually. So that's, yes, yeah, so that's not necessarily kind of a negative thing from the crowd. I don't think so. I don't think that that would be an influence. I'd like to think our players have the mental fortitude to flourish in spite of that atmosphere. And also, I'm not sure, you know, I wasn't there last night. I'm up in Edinburgh at the moment, but the atmosphere didn't sound too negative, certainly via the television. I know you don't get a great sense of it that way. Mm. Um, but I feel like. You know, the season started with real optimism, uh, with great expectations and with the fans really behind the team and believing they could go on and do something this year. So I don't think that there's a kind of pervasive negativity that could be impacting upon their performances. Um, I think it is just a question of not being efficient enough, be that due to to rustiness or in some cases perhaps lack of ability. But Mm. I, I don't think it's to do with the crowd. What do you think? Arsene Wenger always says it's up to the team to to inspire the crowd. Of course, it works both ways, but like you say, they've got to have the mental fortitude. They've got to have the strength to to go out at home that should feel like the the best place for them to play without 
um, without it affecting their performance. And I don't think you can really put any uh, any of the reasons why we're not playing well at home on on the fans. Mm. You know, it's it's got nothing to do with that. We can talk about strikers. We can talk about defensive errors. We can talk about midfield balance. We can talk about numerous things that might be impacting the performances, but it's not the fans. Not the fans. No. All right, here, I've got one one final one very quickly. Okay. And this one comes from Melissa Hackman. Uh, her dad, Gene, was a fine, fine actor. He was not not the, not the worst, certainly. Mm. He, uh, she, of course, not Gene, she would like to know, with the growing popularity of Flamsil... Uh, and Callum looking to put an end to Karl Berlin. <laughs> Which member of the current Arsenal squad would you want to be in a bromance with? And what would your couple name be? That's a great question. Uh, I would say Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, just because he seems like a top guy. Sorry, mm-hmm. Callum Chambers, I'm having for myself. And then we could be called Jocks. <laughs> Jocks. <laughs> James and Ox jocks. Yeah, I that's, like that. That's pretty good. I mean, the obvious we, one for me is uh, is Francis Coquelin, because right. I could use the first part of my surname, and we could be known as Mancock. That's lovely as well. Yeah, Mancock. <laughs> and I feel like you'd really get on. You'd hit it off, I imagine. I think so. Like chalk and more chalk. Mm. Like chalk and a chalkboard. Yes, what, indeed. What could get on better than that? <laughs> All right, so there you go. From Jocks and Mancock, we'll be back on the the Arscast Extra next Monday uh, after our weekend game with Newcastle. That game we'll preview on the Arscast this Friday. Fingers crossed we can, you know, figure out where the goal is and put the ball in there without too much hassle or or disruption from the officials. It'll be easier once Cavani turns up later this week. Yeah, exactly. Him and his strange Frankenstein face. All right, then, until the next one, uh, take it easy, folks. Bye-bye.